Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good evening, uh, good afternoon, and good morning for whoever is connecting across the globe to this Institute Talk from NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, thank you so much for connecting today. And tonight we are going to discuss a very important aspect and issue of happiness and global happiness that relates to a human resiliency on a different aspects. Our talk today will be about how Gen Z can get stronger, smarter, and happier. As the rates of depression, anxiety, and self-harm get higher and far higher for those on Generation Z, um, and Generation Z could be defined by people who are born after 1996 than any previous generation, including the millennials, employee, employers report that Generation Z employees are often more fragile and lacking in life skills. This talk explores the three triple, uh, terrible ideas interacting with the new technology that have weakened Generation Z and discusses how young people can put themselves on a path to becoming stronger, smarter, and happier by rejecting those ideas and embracing ancient, time-tested, and culturally widespread advice. Our amazing speaker today uh, from um, NYU Stern School of Business is Professor Jonathan Haidt. He's the co-author of Cuddling the American Mind. Um, let me introduce our uh, speaker for tonight. Jonathan Haidt is the, the Thomas Colley Professor of Ethical Leadership. He's based in the... Hi, Jonathan. Good evening. He's based in the Business uh, and Society Program at New York University Stern School of Business. Um, Professor Haidt is a, a social psychologist whose research examines the intuitive foundation of morality. His most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Um, in that book, Heights refers and offers an account of origins of the human moral sense, and he shows how variations of moral intuitions can help explain the polarization and dysfunctions of American politics. At Stern, he's applying his research on moral psychology to rethink the way business ethics is studied. And don't we do need that today? And is integrated in the curriculum as well. His goal is to draw on the best behavioral science research to create organizations that function as ethical systems with only minimal need of, for directly training people to behave ethically. So essentially, Jonathan, you are resetting our moral campus and our, our human campus somehow. He co-founded the research collaboration at ethicalsystems.org. And his next book will be titled Three Stories About Capitalism, The Moral Psychology of Economic Life. Stay tuned for that publication. Before coming to Stern, Professor Hyde 
uh, taught for 16 years at the University of Virginia. His first book was The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom. I'm sure we'll have traces of that tonight. His writings appear uh, frequently in the New York, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and he has given uh, four TED Talks. He was named one of the top global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine and also by Prospect magazine. Professor Haidt received his uh, BA in philosophy from Yale University and a PhD in psychology from University of, of Pennsylvania. Jonathan, the floor is all yours. We're all ears here. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Outhami, for that warm welcome. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it is such a pleasure to be speaking to you at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, as, as Dr. Al-Ghazami mentioned, I joined NYU uh, in 2011. I'd been teaching at the University of Virginia, uh, but it wasn't until I took a sabbatical, I had a sabbatical in 2015, and I spent three months traveling across Asia to see how economic development was going in, in around the world. And I started with a week at NYU Abu Dhabi. The, the campus was very new then, it was so beautiful. Uh, I gave a talk uh, there, I met some students, I was so warmly welcomed. And it wasn't until then that I really had a sense of, of what NYU is or what it had become. To be on this campus right in between Europe, Asia, and Africa, um, on the other side of the world from, from what I was used to in New York. Um, so I, I love what is happening at NYU Abu Dhabi. I'm proud to be an NYU professor, to be part of this global network university. Um, so let me talk to you tonight about some disturbing trends that are happening to young people, to people born after 1995-96. Something changed in their childhood that made them very different from people who were born before 1995. So I'm going to share my screen and show you some slides. Um, and then let's see, I will optimize for video clips, share sound, desktop to Share, and here we go. Okay. So I'm going to talk to you about what's happening to Gen Z. Now, I have very good data on what's happening in the United States, and it's almost identical to what's happening in the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. All the English-speaking countries are the same. Um, this is happening to some extent in European countries, less so in Latin America, and I don't know what's happening in East Asia, South Asia, and the Middle East. So I'll present uh, what I what I found, and then I welcome in the discussion uh, if there's some way. Well, I welcome just finding out whether you agree that these trends are happening around the world. As you'll see, I think technological changes that are affecting young people all across the planet are the major reason. So I suspect that these are global problems. Let's begin. I like to begin my talks nowadays at the very beginning. I like to ask. What is the most fundamental question in life? Think about that for a second. What do you think is the most fundamental question in life? Now, some of you might be thinking, what's the meaning of life? Or is there a God? Or why am I here? Now, those are big questions, but they're not fundamental. Fundamental, like fundament means the foundation, the base. What is the basic, most basic question upon which everything else is built? I submit to you that there's only one answer approach or avoid? That's the fundamental question of life. Because as soon as life got the ability to move, 
around seven or 800 million years ago. As soon as we had one-celled organisms that could move, those organisms had to optimize. They had to figure out which way, approach this or avoid it. And all of the rest of the evolution of life, all of the rest of brain evolution is just improvements on that question, approach or avoid. So a fish brain has all kinds of organs for different senses that help the fish optimize whether to approach or avoid novel objects, lower temperatures, whatever it is. Now, the human brain is gigantic. The human brain has enormous areas in the front left cortex that are specialized for approach, for approaching things, and areas in the front right that are specialized for withdrawal, for fear and negative emotions that pull us away from things. Um, we can change over to a psychological framework by saying the front left cortex, the big area of, on the front left part of our brain, puts us into discover mode. When that's hyperactivated, we are in discover mode. When the front right is activated, we're in defend mode. We want to avoid. Uh, to flesh this out, in discover mode, our brain is looking at the world for opportunities. What are the possibilities that the world offers me? You feel like a kid in a candy shop. You think for yourself. You want to think quickly. You want to seize opportunities. And the motto of a student in defend in, in discover mode is, Whoever grows the most by graduation wins. That's the right way to think about your education. You want to grow as much as possible. But if you're in defend mode, you look out at the world and you see threats, and your brain is working overtime to find out what could hurt me. You have a scarcity mindset. There's not enough to go around. I better get what I can. Uh, otherwise, people will take it from me. You cling to your team because you're so afraid. You cling to others for defense. And you tend to be attracted to conflict mindsets because you see life as a struggle between groups that are struggling over limited resources. Now, just hold that for one second. Let's talk about universities and what it takes to be a university student. Uh, the most helpful word I have found in the last 10 years is the Greek word telos. So Aristotle and the ancient Greeks, when they analyzed something, they would try to understand causation in multiple ways, but one way was teleologically. What is the end or purpose or function of this thing? <clears throat> so the telos of a knife is to cut. And if I tell you I've got a great knife, it doesn't cut anything, but it's a really good knife, you would say, no, it, it's not a good knife. You have misunderstood what a knife is. Similarly, what's the telos of a physician? It's to heal. And a good physician is very good at healing. So what is the telos of a university? Well, when we look um, at images of the academy, um, American, or I should say Western or European universities, trace themselves back to Plato's Academy in ancient Greece. This is a, a painting by Raphael called the School of Athens. You see Plato and Aristotle in the center of it. And all of the people there, what are they doing? Are they fighting? Are they playing? They're disputing, arguing, talking, debating. They're engaged in a special kind of interaction from which the truth emerges. So a university is designed for the telos of truth. Harvard's crest says veritas. Yale's crest says lux et veritas, light and truth. This is what a Western university is supposed to be about. It's telos is truth, it is designed to bring people together to pursue truth. Um, and 
in, in, <clears throat> uh, in the United States, at least, we have this image of college as a time when we sit around campus talking with our professors, with each other. We're talking, we're learning, we're exchanging ideas. I just looked up the mission statement for NYU Abu Dhabi, and it's very similar. NYU Abu Dhabi was created to offer a pioneering new model of higher education, dedicated at once to excellence in teaching and research, innovative research and graduate education, pushing forward the frontiers of knowledge. So NYU Abu Dhabi also has a particularly international mission, but it's all in the service of educating young people to be effective in this world and pushing forward the boundaries of knowledge because that's our mission ultimately is to discover new things in the sciences and the social sciences. Um, so we're all on the same page. We all understand why do we have these big, expensive, fascinating, amazing things called universities. Now, what I wanna, what I wanna present to you is the amazing thing that happened in American universities in the 20th century, which is we created this virtuous triangle that is, there's a psychological mindset, discover mode, when the front left cortex is activated, and we've created this institution that really activates that mindset, the curiosity, the love of learning, all within an institution whose telos is truth. And so it's a virtuous triangle. Each corner reinforces the others. And this is why American universities became the best in the world in the 20th century. Almost all of the top universities in the world are based in the United States, um, except for a couple in the UK, which of course America copied. We copied Cambridge and Oxford. So that's the way it was in the 20th century with research universities in particular. And that, of course, NYU Abu Dhabi is a little different, but it is a variation on that American research university theme. But now something started going wrong, very wrong in 2014. It wasn't there in 2012, uh, but it began in 2014. That is, all of a sudden, a lot of the students were in defend mode, and we couldn't understand it. We couldn't understand what they were saying. So suddenly in 2014, we had students asking for trigger warnings. If a professor assigns a play and the play has sexual violence in it, let's say it's a Greek myth from 3,000 years ago, students said, well, you have to warn us. You can't just expect us to read a story. We might be traumatized by it. So they wanted trigger warnings for material that might be upsetting to somebody in the class. Uh, we started seeing a big increase in protests, often of speakers on the political right, but often on the left as well. Um, anybody who was held to violate political values was protested and said to be dangerous. And we started hearing students ask for safe spaces. If a speaker is going to come to campus and say things that might be upsetting, she might, for example, question some ideas that students hold dear. Well, you can't just let this happen. This could be very upsetting to those students. They value those ideas. We don't want them challenged. And we couldn't understand it. Like, what do you mean you're in danger? Just don't go to the talk. You don't have to go to the talk. So it made no sense. But now in retrospect, we can understand students arriving around 2014, a lot of them were in defend mode. And that virtuous triangle was breaking down. It didn't work anymore. The first person to figure this out was my friend Greg Lukianoff. He runs the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, and Greg suffers from depression, and he'd had a suicidal depression in, 20, uh, in 2007. 
And in the hospital and afterwards, he learned how to do cognitive behavioral therapy, where you question your negative assumptions. And so he goes back to his work on campus, defending free speech rights for students. And suddenly in 2013, 2014, Greg sees students saying, stop this talk. Don't expose us to this idea because it will kill people, because it will, terrible things will happen. And Greg says, wait, the students are doing the exact cognitive distortions that I learned not to do. And if the students are doing this, won't this make them depressed? So Greg came to me, presented this idea. I thought it was great because I'd seen some evidence of it. And together we wrote an article that came out in August of 2015 uh, titled The Coddling of the American Mind. Coddling means overprotection, treating college students as if they're children. Uh, and that's what we began doing in 2015, we argued. And some people said, come on, you're exaggerating. But a few months after our article, American universities blew up. It began at Yale University with protests over Halloween costume policies. Should students be allowed to wear certain Halloween costumes or should the leadership tell them what they can and can't wear? There was a big debate. It, it blew up with demands to the president. Um, so sometimes it was about race, but often it was about anything. Um, a right-wing speaker tried to speak at the University of California at Berkeley. There were giant protests, including some violence. Nobody was killed, but a lot of people were sent to the hospital. Um, students began just being much more aggressive in their protests. They would come into classrooms with bullhorns. They would stop anything they thought violated their political values. So things were getting so much worse um, on campus that Greg and I decided to write up our article to expand it into a book titled The Coddling of the American Mind. <clears throat> now, a big question for you is, is this happening at NYU Abu Dhabi? The way you can know that this new culture of safetyism is there at NYU AD is if students are talking about safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, bias response teams to investigate microaggressions, if they speak about speech being violence, um, if the dominant analytical mode is about power, everything's about power and power structures, if there's a call-out culture in which people are trying to punish others for a single word, a, an accidental word perhaps, um, these things all go together in this new culture of safetyism. And so I'll ask you to think about it. And those of you who are part of the NYU Abu Dhabi community, especially those working with undergrads or who are undergrads, I would welcome your comments at the end, your evaluation as to whether uh, this culture has uh, hit, hit NYU Abu Dhabi. It's definitely here at NYU Washington Square. Um, suddenly, since 2015, many students are in defend mode. They think that they are fragile in a dangerous and hostile university, and they need protection from words, books, and speakers. So that's the phenomenon. What is happening? Where did this come from? Why are we in this? And what can we do to help students out of it? Because in this defend mode, they're not going to learn very much. Now, why did this suddenly happen in 2014? Um, I'm a social psychologist. I'm a social scientist. I'm very wary of single explanations. There's not a single explanation. So in the book, we have six different chapters going into six different causes, almost like threads or fuses that all came together and blew up in 2015. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of them. I just want to show you this is a complicated story. Instead, what I'm going to do with the rest of our time together is I'm going to focus on three terrible, terrible ideas, three ideas that are so bad that any young person who embraces them is almost guaranteed to become weak, unhappy, and ineffective. So I'll go through them one at a time, but the first one is 
what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, which of course is the opposite of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's dictum. So the first bad idea we're talking about is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, now, this is the opposite of what Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, said when he said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So the way to understand Nietzsche and why this statement is true is this. Um, oh, I just want to point out, these are great truths. These three untruths are the opposite of ancient wisdom, East and West. So Mencius or Meng Tzu in China said very much the same thing. When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on, on any man, it will give him all kinds of hardships in order to uh, stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve whatever he is in competence. It's the same idea as Nietzsche. And the reason that both of these quotes are true is the concept of anti-fragility. So there's an amazing book by actually an NYU professor, Nassim Taleb. Uh, he writes about anti-fragility because he was interested in what are systems that actually need to be attacked, shocked, stressed in order to grow strong. And people would say, well, things that are resilient. And he said, no, no, resilient just means, you know, if you drop a plastic cup, it doesn't break. So glass is fragile. If you drop a glass, it breaks. A plastic cup is resilient. If you drop it, it doesn't break. But it doesn't get better. And Taleb wanted to know, what are the, what's the name for things that get better when you drop them? And so he made up the term anti-fragile. And some examples are bones. You know, if you don't use your bones, if you float in space for months, your bones get weak. The immune system, we now all understand. A vaccine stresses, triggers your immune system, and then that actually makes your immune system stronger. And the best example, the most important one is children. Children are anti-fragile. Um, so uh, I don't know if you have this in Abu Dhabi, but in the United States, we all ate peanut butter when we were kids in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But in the early 2000s, we started banning peanuts because more and more kids were allergic. Now, why were peanut allergies becoming so common? Some um, allergists got the idea that, well, maybe the problem is that we're banning peanuts that kids are not exposed to, to it. And they designed a simple experiment um, based on the idea that if we give uh, infants a tiny bit of peanut dust, that will trigger their immune system and then they'll be stronger. Um, and so they took, there's a, an Israeli snack food called bamba, which is like puffed corn with peanut dust. So it tastes a bit like peanut butter. And what they did was they found uh, 640 women who had recently given birth and whose kids were at high risk for having um, some sort of allergy, food allergy or peanut allergy. And they put them, uh, half of them were told, um, here's, here's some bamba, give a little bit to your kid, we'll monitor, we'll make sure everything's okay but regularly give your kids some peanut powder. And the other half, we're told, follow standard advice, don't give your kids anything with peanuts, and you, don't you consume anything with peanuts because it will come out in your breast milk when you nurse. So you should avoid peanuts. That's the standard advice. What happened? Um, of, the, of the women who avoided peanuts, 17% of their children developed a peanut allergy by age five. That means for the rest of their life, they have to be wary. They have to be in defend mode when they go into a restaurant. Does it have peanuts? If so, I'm in big trouble. I could die. Um, but those who are exposed to peanuts, the rate of peanut allergy when tested at age five was 3%. In other words, by giving kids peanuts, um, the, the researchers concluded 
uh, that the standard advice about avoiding was incorrect and may have contributed to the rise in peanut allergies. And that's why the subtitle of our book is how good intentions, protecting kids, and bad ideas, that kids are fragile, are setting up a generation for failure. So let's try this again, but with the whole child this time. Kids look fragile, let's protect them. Let's protect them from all of life's threats. But if we do that, they don't get to learn how to protect themselves. We have to always be there for them. And American parents, especially in the middle class and above, American parents have developed this very overprotective uh, style. We call it helicopter parenting. The parent is always there like in a helicopter to protect the child. That way the child will never have to learn anything for himself. And that means that even when children graduate from college, they still have not had practice being fully independent. This, we believe, is what has happened to Gen Z. It's not their fault. This was caused by the parents being overprotective, but this is what has happened. Uh, now, if we were all together, I could do this demonstration, which works everywhere in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Uh, I don't know how it will work, in, in uh, especially in Asia and the Middle East, but I would like you to all consider the age at which you were let out. That is the age at which your parents would let you out the door and you could walk out and go see a friend. Um, at what age could you go out without any adult supervision? And so in the United States, uh, what we call first grade is age six. And so if you were let out, uh, if you could go play outside with your friends at age six, you should say six. Um, if you were not let out until high school, that is ninth grade, uh, you should say 14. And so I wish I could survey all of you here, uh, but I can tell you what I always find, um, that those born before 1982, um, the answer is always six, seven, or eight. And so this was my generation. We were raised during a crime wave. There was a lot of crime in the 70s and 80s, but we all played outside. Now, um, the crime wave ended in the 90s. Life got very, very safe in the 1990s. But for kids born after 1995, we decided the world is too dangerous. We will not let you out of our sight. You have to always be supervised by an adult or you might be abducted or, or killed. So our paranoia led to uh, young people being kept in until generally they were 10 years old. At age 11 and 12, we let kids out, but we don't let them out at eight or nine anymore in the United States. Um, now, what is the result of this? Play, unsupervised free play is the most important thing that kids can do. It's the way they learn the fastest. Uh, Peter Gray, a psychologist who studies play, in 2011, he wrote this amazing essay on how important play is and how what's going to happen now that we're depriving our children of free play. We're keeping them indoors, always supervised. What's going to happen? And he predicted we will get a big rise in depression and anxiety. Uh, and that is what has happened, as I'll show you in just a moment. Um, so um, the, the, what we should be doing instead is an ancient, uh, uh, an ancient piece of wisdom. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And in America, we've done the opposite. We try to protect our children from hitting any bump on the road of life. Now, um, I just want to make it clear, there are limits to this, uh, to this advice. Um, childhood trauma is not good. I am not saying, oh, don't worry about kids being exposed to terrible things. No. Research on trauma, especially in young childhood, it's terrible. It leaves... It, it causes damage. I'm not saying kids can be beaten or, or exposed to sexual predators. That, that, that is uh, uh, permanently damaging. We're talking about stressors and challenges that are within the capability of the child to cope. Secondly, uh, chronic stress is bad. 
Short-term stress is good. Kids need to be exposed to a lot of short-term stress. A challenge, you're stressed, you resolve it, it goes down. That trains the system to work. Chronic, long-lasting stress burns you out. It's very bad. And finally, inequality. Um, uh, I'm not saying don't ever fix the road. Uh, in America, we have a lot of economic inequality, and the roads taken by poor kids versus rich kids are very different. Some of those obstacles just slow them down. Of course, we need to improve the road that's going to lead them to a productive, uh, a productive mature, and successful um, adulthood. So Taleb has this beautiful phrase. He points out that a candle is fragile if you blow on it, goes out, but a fire is anti-fragile. The harder you blow, the stronger it gets. So Taleb says, you want to be the fire and wish for the wind. All right, now uh, I'm going to pick up just one of these six threads, the, rise, the, the change in mental health, the rising anxiety and depression for Gen Z. So let me show you some data uh, on this. So uh, Gen Z, born around 1996 and later, they grew up very differently. And when they arrived on college campuses, this is what we saw. In 2010-2012, all the students were millennials, born between 1982 and 1995. Um, but when G Gen Z arrives on campus around 2013, suddenly rates go up. Rates of uh, attention deficit disorder go up a little, but it's overwhelmingly psychological disorders that are going up. We then learned it's not all psychological disorders. It's only depression and anxiety. That's it. It's not bipolar disorder, not alcoholism, not, um, uh, uh, you know, not schizophrenia, just depression and anxiety. Um, so when the millennials were the students, these were the rates, uh, you know, about 12% uh, of American teen girls. Turns Because I'm saying it wasn't just college students. It's actually a national change in, teen, in American teens. When Gen Z enters the data set around 2011, 2012, the rates go up for boys and they go way up for girls. Um, by 2018, it was the case that more than one in five American girls had had a major depression, not just felt blue, they'd had a major depression, a serious depression in the last year, more than one in five. Uh, it's also um, anxiety, and it's not just self-report. Some critics said, oh, come on, come on, Haidt and Lukianoff. You know, Gen Z, they're just very comfortable talking about it. This is a good thing that they admit to it. It's not that they're really more depressed. <laughs> No, because data on behavioral outcomes shows the same trend. Uh, this is hospital admissions for self-harm. Um, when kids harm themselves, they especially cut themselves. They take a knife or a piece of glass, they cut themselves so that their parents bring them to the hospital. What we see here is that for these three age groups, there's no trend between 2001 and 2009. But after 2010, 2011, the rates go up. For the older teen girls, the rate is up 62%, just between 2010 and 2015. Um, and for the uh, younger teen girls who didn't used to cut themselves, their rate has nearly tripled. So something big is happening. This is not self-report. These are hospital admissions. American teen girls are going to the hospital for self-harm. The boys are not. This does not affect boys. Boys tend not to self-harm. Boys will drink. They'll commit more violence, although those are not going up. Self-harm is really hitting American, British, and Canadian girls. Um, uh, and it's also in suicide, both for boys and girls. But the biggest increase percentage-wise is preteen or young teen girls. Their rate is up 150% um, uh, in the uh, beginning around 2013, 2014. The rate jumps. It more than, it more than doubles. 
Uh, you can find out a lot more about what's happening in other countries if you go to our website, thecoddling.com. I've created focus sheets like Google Docs where we have all the data we can find for all of the English-speaking countries where it's very easy for me and my research assistants to gather the data. Um, uh, and we find the exact same pattern um, in those countries as we find in the U.S. Uh, I just found this, this study published earlier this year about data in the U.K. What this shows is, again, just what I told you before. If we look at uh, if we look at anxiety rates, you see for girls, those are four different age groups. Um, if we had if we stopped the data collection in 2012, we'd see no trend. But since 2012, uh, we see that the rate for uh, for teen girls has generally doubled or more. It's also up for boys, although not as much. Um, and as in the U.S., rates of self-harm also shoot up for girls. As you can see there, there's no trend uh, up, and up to 2011, but beginning in 2012 and 2013, the rate uh, for uh, 13 to 16 year old girls in particular goes from, it, it, it more than doubles or it doubles. So something big is happening and it's very sudden. It began around 2013, 2012, 2013. Why? Why is this happening at the same time in multiple countries with bigger impacts on girls and especially preteen girls? The answer I believe is the arrival of social media. So uh, this data, this graph here shows um, what percentage of American high school kids were on social media daily. What were basically checking, you know, more than more than every day they were they were checking their status and their updates. And so it's not until 2006 that Facebook opens to the world. Before then, you had to be a college student or in 2005 a particular high school student. But in 2006, anyone can create an account. In 2007, the iPhone comes out. Before then, kids had flip phones where they could dial. Uh, in 2009, Facebook and Twitter really changed. They add the like button and the retweet button. They become much more engaging. And it's this period, 2009 to 2011, what you see here is that the steepest, uh, the steepest up, uh, uptrend uh, is those two years, uh, 2009 to 2011. That's when American teens went from mostly not being on social media every day to mostly being on every day, especially Instagram. And that period is exactly the period before the rates of depression begin going up, especially for girls. Um, just uh, a month ago, we, we learned about uh, uh, a whistleblower at Facebook who brought us documents showing that Facebook and Instagram knew that they're harming teen girls. They knew it. They were seeing if they could maybe make it better by hiding the like counter, doing some little changes, but they know that they cause harm to a lot of girls. Um, the, uh, if you focus on social media, you can understand why it affects girls so much. Um, all teens are on screens all day long, uh, but girls are spending much more time on social media. Boys are gaming. Girls are more affected by constant social comparison um, than our boys. Girls are more affected by fear of missing out, fear of being left out. And finally, girls and boys are equally aggressive, uh, but girls' aggression is always relational, generally relational. They try to harm other girls' uh, reputations or relationships. So video games don't make boys more aggressive. In fact, they allow boys to work together to compete with other boys. It, um, but um, social media allows girls to harm other girls, even on the weekends, and they can do it anonymously. So for all these reasons, social media has been devastating for teen girls and not so bad for teen boys. So that's the first point about anti-fragility. When you understand fragility and anti-fragility, you can see why Gen Z is doing so badly, especially the girls. The second uh, great idea or great untruth 
I'll just cover very, very briefly. Always trust your feelings. Now, this is the opposite of what wise people in every society have told us. Um, the, the, the Stoics, in particular, Epictetus, says it is not things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. We should not trust our feelings. We should question them. Often our feelings lead us wrong. Don't overreact. Don't get angry so quickly. Question your feelings. Do you really want to react that way? Do you need to react that way? Is there an alternative? Uh, Buddha says something very similar in different language. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. And of course, Buddhism is a way of meditating and calming yourself down so that you don't react quickly to the things around you. You keep your calm and you can react thoughtfully. Uh, this is the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. What, what Aaron Beck and others discovered in the 1960s is if, that, if they can get very depressed people to begin questioning their assumptions and looking for alternate explanations, actually the depression goes away. And this is what Greg Lukianoff did after his suicidal depression. He learned CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, in our original coddling article, we listed some of the main cognitive distortions, such as catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, emotional reasoning. Um, these are the opposite of good thinking. These are the opposite, <coughs> pardon me, the opposite of critical thinking. Universities should teach students to stop doing these things. And if they do that, they will have fewer depressed students. So um, this was, of course, the central idea of our original coddling article. So that's all I'll say about that one for now. In the interest of time, I'm going to focus on the first great untruth and now on the third great untruth. So a very common idea that people have is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. But wisdom is the opposite. Wisdom from East and West says, no, no. Um, we are all prone to dichotomous thinking, that it's binary thinking, breaking things in two, and we're all prone to tribalism, to groupishness. Uh, this is one of the wisest uh, moral insights from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian dissident. He was imprisoned by the Soviet Union, um, and he describes his time there. And If ever there was a time to think about good and evil, it was while being a prisoner um, in the gulag, uh, nearly being killed by starvation and cold. Uh, and he says, uh, but rather than rather than uh, seeing his captors as evil, he says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Almost all great works of literature know this, teach us this. The people are complicated. We all have the ability to do good and to do evil. Um, we also see a similar insight from uh, from Jesus in the New Testament. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? but you do not notice the law in your own eye. We're all, we're all prone to hypocrisy. Um, we're all prone to groupishness. There's an ancient Bedouin uh, saying, um, I against my brothers, I and my brothers against my cousins, I and my brothers and cousins um, against the world. Um, so uh, ancient societies, wise people in every culture knew that we're prone to hypocrisy and groupishness or tribalism. And that exploded on campus among students around 2015, so much so that other students started saying, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Whatever I say or do, someone's going to call me out online. Someone's going to shame me or attack me. So students started writing about how they're walking on eggshells. Um, a student at Smith College, I won't read the whole quote, uh, but she's, she talks about how um, 
suddenly, uh, when she arrived on the Smith campus in Massachusetts, she found people were calling them out. Uh, they could detect a politically incorrect view and call the person out on their mistake. She says, I began to voice my opinion less often to avoid being berated and judged by a community that claims to represent the free expression of ideas. She learns to walk on eggshells for fear that she may say something offensive. So that hit the students around 2015 and it hit the professors as well. Since 2015, I, like many other professors, have learned we can't be provocative. We can't say things that might offend anyone. Um, I hope I'm being a little bit provocative in my talk today, but I'm being very careful because if anything I say offends someone, there are all kinds of procedures they can go through to report me. So we have to be careful. Um, and this makes, our, this makes education much less interesting, much less useful, much less effective. We're much less likely to challenge students. If students believe something strongly, we're gonna think twice before we say, are you sure that's right? Maybe you're wrong. Now, part of what's going on here uh, is the spread of an idea called intersectionality. Uh, uh, so Kimberly Crenshaw is, is one of the scholars, she's a, a law scholar, um, who written about this concept. It's a very good concept. The idea, the central idea, is that people's identities don't just add up, they intersect and interact. So to be a black woman in America is not just the sum of being a black person and being a female person. There are unique challenges, obstacles, and indignities that hit black women today and if you don't know to look for it, you won't see it. So it's a very good idea. I'm not criticizing the idea. Unfortunately, when this idea is applied on campus, it tends to be taught in ways that encourage students to think in binary dimensions. So students are shown figures like this, um, that the world is divided into white people and non-white, male and non-male. Um, and it's not just that these are dimensions of identity, it's that these are moralized identities. That is, the people above the line are morally bad because those are the oppressors. Those are people with power. Things are analyzed primarily in terms of power and privilege, and the people with power and privilege use it to oppress others, so they are morally bad. The people below the line are the victims of oppression, that mean, and they resist, and so they are the good people. Um, intersectionality teaches us to look for uh, combinations of identities, uh, and so it teaches us that the problem, the bad people, the worst people are the cisgender, heterosexual, white males. They are at the top of the power structure. So political activity should be organized. Everybody should come together to take them down. That would create equality. And so leadership training in the United States, uh, this is at, a, at an Ivy League school, not far from where I'm sitting right now. Um, leadership training uh, involves teaching young people to see society as being divided into binary opposition groups. And so the cisgender men are the bad people and everyone else are the good people. Whites are the bad people, everyone else is the good people. Um, I was interested to note that uh, by age, ages 28 to 52 are the bad people because they're the most powerful. Um, now that I'm 58, now I at least can claim that kind of oppression that I am oppressed by uh, people in their 40s and, and early 50s, I suppose. Um, now, what this has given us is an approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, based primarily on these two books, How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility. These are the two best-selling books. These are what are widely read in American corporations and in DEI programs. Um, and this leads to a way of thinking about identity issues. I mean, diversity is important. Inclusion is important. We want everyone to feel welcome. 
But when you do it within a framework of the bad people versus the good people, then you get things like this. This was sent to me by a student uh, about a half mile north of where I am right now at the new school just north of our campus uh, here in Greenwich Village. Students had created a space that is only for people who are not white, who are not straight white people. Everyone else, the victims, um, can use this space, but straight white people are the bad people. They must not use this space. Now, this is deeply un-American. This is deeply disturbing. This is deeply sad. Um, the alternative, well, just to say, a lot of people have noticed that what's happened since 2014, 2015 is very much like a new fundamentalist religion. John McWhorter, um, a, a scholar, a, a linguist at Columbia University, has been writing for a while now about how this kind of anti-racism is like a fundamentalist religion. Um, and I want to really, to bring this home, the way we're approaching this really important challenge of diversity, we, we, NYU Abu Dhabi, NYU Shanghai, this is all about creating a global university. And our campuses are not just local, they are all global. If we're going to do that, wouldn't it be better if we're all in discover mode and we can learn from each other and we're curious about each other and we ask questions about each other? That would be discover mode. Instead, we're encouraging or we're teaching students to be in defend mode. So if you ask someone here in the United States, people are very wary now of asking anyone about their home culture because that could be taken to be a microaggression. You never know how they're going to react. So just don't do it. Just don't ask. That's the safest way. There's a much better approach. Um, it's the approach that worked for the civil rights movement. So Pauli Murray, a, 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 a gay, possibly transgender woman, um, uh, wrote in the uh, began in the 40s, uh, she wrote this beautiful line, <clears throat> uh, I intend to destroy segregation by positive and embracing methods. When my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. Now, this was she was writing in 1946 before Martin Luther King became even active uh, in the civil rights struggle. Uh, and of course, Martin Luther King uh, very much took this common humanity view. He reached out, he emphasized our common humanity, um, he, used, he used Christianity, he used American identity, he drew common circles around people and appealed to their better nature. Of course, he also organized boycotts and political and moral pressure. He was not a naive idealist, but he didn't demonize and hate. He applied pressure, but he welcomed people with love. That's the way to do it. That's the way to actually win people over and change them. Okay, so what now? I've told you about three terrible ideas that are pushed upon Gen Z that many people in Gen Z believe. If you embrace those three ideas, I can almost guarantee you will fail. Um, so what can we do to set Gen Z up for success? Um, so for those of you on the call who are professors or administrators anywhere at NYU Abu Dhabi, um, as soon as students arrive, you must present the concept of anti-fragility. You have to frame the experience as one in which you will be challenged, and that's good, and you will be offended, and that's part of learning to live with people who are different from you. you no one is here to protect you from that. You, you can, by all means, talk to the person. Violence, oppression, racist rants, that's different. But if someone says something you think is insensitive, we're not going to come in and punish that person. This is part of everyday life. So Ruth Simmons, the first African-American president of an Ivy League school at Brown, um, she said, learning is the antithesis of comfort. The collision of views and ideologies is in the DNA of the academic enterprise. 
We do not need any collision avoidance technology here. And she said that around 1998, long before Nassim Taleb gave us the term anti-fragile, but this is what she's saying. Education assumes that you are anti-fragile. So you have to frame the experience for students immediately as you're anti-fragile and we're gonna treat you that way. And uh, if we treat you as, as being fragile, we're gonna make you fragile. So we're not doing that. Um, I assume you have increasing levels of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and even suicide, as we do here in New York. Um, so consider teaching CBT, consider teaching cognitive behavioral therapy. It's very cheap and easy to learn. Um, uh, consider using Open Mind. I created a program called Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, it applies insights from social psychology and moral psychology. It, it prepares people to talk to people who are different from them. It teaches them the psychology of why we take offense so easily and unnecessarily, of, 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 of why you should try to learn from those who are different from you. We have evidence that it improves perspective taking, humility, all sorts of good things. It reduces uh, all sorts of bad things. Uh, now, for those of you who are students who I especially want to talk to, um, your generation is in crisis. You're, there has never been as fast an increase in depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide as is hitting Gen Z. Again, you're an international audience. I don't know that this is true in all countries, but especially if you're from an English-speaking country, I do know that it's true. And I welcome your thoughts as to whether this is happening in other places. Now, in many non-Western countries, it might just be you're two or three years behind because you didn't get the same technology exactly the same time. It might've taken longer to penetrate through. Uh, although of course, if you're in Korea, you probably were ahead of the United States in terms of technology adoption. In any case, I recommend these two books to learn about what's happening to your generation and what challenges you face. Um, and above all, and this is the point of the title of my talk today about how to become smarter, stronger, and happier, learn to recognize these three great untruths, these three terrible ideas that adults are going to try to teach you now, they have good intentions, they're trying to protect you, um, but their protection has been disastrous. Their protection has caused the rise of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and I think suicide. Instead, you should embrace these psychological principles. In other words, you should embrace ancient wisdom, not modern nonsense. Um, I urge you to read the wisdom literature of the world. My first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, what I did uh, was I, I just read of wisdom literature, East and West, uh, I, you know, the Bible, the Quran, the Dhammapada. Um, and I took out all the psychological claims and I just evaluated, are they true? And guess what? They're all true. The ancients knew nothing about physics and chemistry, but they were pretty wise about social relationships, about consciousness, and about happiness. So I particularly recommend to you the Stoics, especially Marcus Aurelius, the Gregory Hayes translation is the best one in English, I believe, and Epictetus. Now this version here by, uh, by Sharon LaBelle is not a literal translation. It, it does depart from what Epictetus said in some places, but it is kind of like what he would say if he was alive today. So for, for undergraduate, this is not a scholarly work, but for undergraduates, this is a wonderful, wonderful work translating Stoic wisdom into modern times. And finally, the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha, uh, is again, one of the just the densest concentrations of human wisdom ever assembled. Um, uh, so just a simple quote from Marcus Aurelius, you don't have to turn this into something. It doesn't have to upset you. Things can't shape our decisions by themselves. So nobody can trigger you. Uh, many uh, American teens say, oh, he triggered me. No, 
No, he said something and then you reacted, but you didn't have to react. You certainly didn't have to be hurt. That is your choice. You have some control over that. And finally, um, if you understand anti-fragility, you understand that you actually need to seek out challenge and including some unpleasant situations. So here's the most beautiful, powerful quote. Um, let's see, I'm gonna try, I'll try playing. It is four minutes long. That will take us, that will be the end of my talk. Uh, so we have the time. So Van Jones, he was in the Obama administration. He's a really great political commentator. He's a Democrat, he's on the left, but he totally understands the need to talk with and debate Republicans and conservatives. He's on talk shows, he shows respect to his opponents. He's, he's, he's really wonderful for our time. And so he was interviewed at the University of Chicago where students had tried to protest a talk by somebody who was in the Trump administration. And he said this, but I'm gonna just, uh, let's see if this works. I think this works. I'm gonna play you, uh, let's see. So we'll start around here. Earlier, you know, we had, and, I, and, and I'm sure there were people on different sides of this issue here. We had Corey Lewandowski here last week that engendered a protest outside uh, the meeting, also part of our democracy and, and important. Um, but there were, you know, there's a lot of anger and a lot of uh, rage about what this administration is doing and the sense that don't have anybody associated with him because then you're normalizing uh, the uh, administration. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I have a different view, but Can I I'm interested in yours. Look, I, I don't like bigots and bullies. I just want to just point that out. I'm, I'm against bigots, I'm against bullies. So just leave that as it is. Those who like bigots and bullies yeah. raise your... Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so but I, I'm going to say I'm, I got tough talk for my liberal colleagues on these campuses. Um, and they don't tend to like it, but I, they tend to like me so I can get away with it. So I'm going to keep trying to Let's push Let's test it. the proposition. Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 I want to I wanna push this. There are two ideas about safe spaces. One is a very good idea and one is a terrible idea. The idea of being physically safe on a campus, not being subjected to sexual harassment and physical abuse or, 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 or something like that or being targeted specifically personally for some kind of hate speech, you are an N-word, whatever. That, I, hey, perfectly fine with that perfectly fine with that. But there's another view that is now, I think, ascendant, which I think is just a horrible view, which is that I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. I just need to feel good all the time. And if someone says something that I don't like, that is a problem for everybody else, including the administration. And I think that is a terrible idea for the following reason. I don't want you to be safe, ideologically. I don't want you to be safe, emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not gonna take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. You can't live on a campus 
where people say stuff you don't like and these people can't fire you. They can't arrest you. They can't beat you up. They can just say stuff you don't like and you get to say stuff back. <laughs> and this you cannot bear. <laughs> okay, so um, as you see, uh, Van Jones really understands anti-fragility and he's telling American college students, stop it. Stop freaking out because somebody is coming who has politics you don't like. Go see the talk. It'll be good for you. So uh, to conclude, I would just like to say, um, especially to the students here, you are not fragile balloons that can be popped by one pin. Uh, I would like to say you are the fire. Now go find some wind. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your questions. Wow, what an insightful journey. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for, for really, it's a much needed conversation today, um, especially for uh, our fellow student body across board, not only in NYU or Abu Dhabi, but everywhere else. Um, um, I actually had the, um, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, and interviewing Nassim Talib myself. And one of the most important aspects I do remember when I, we talked about his, his views in Black Swan and Antifragility and the rest of the books is mm -hmm. he said something that resonated with me and very similar to what you just discussed. He said that emotions are meant to be felt. Mm -hmm. They're meant to be loved. They're not meant to be, um, you know, segregated from our human beings. They are, they are the lubricants of reason and we actually need to feel things to make decisions. And this is why possibly we need to go through these experiences in life and rather than, you know, be too scared of being shattered by the unknown. Um, so I would like to start by channeling the audience uh, questions um, and then we can take it. Uh, I have my own questions, but let's start with the um, a question from Alexander uh, Pacheo. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Pacheco. Uh, he's saying he's a big fan of you, Professor. Uh, uh, and he's asking if you have found any relation between the lack of a close relationships top five or top 15 um, number number and these mental health issues. He's working on social network projects um, that, um, that uh, investigates this theory. Um, and he has an, uh, a, 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 a website, 150.earth, https uh, forward slashes 150.earth. Uh, and he's from Dallas, Texas. So we wanted to know your view on this. Very good. Uh, so first, let me say that I will I will make a copy of the slides available. I think the video is going to be available. And I will, after we get off here today, I'll make a copy of the slides and send it to you, Hoden, and you can make them available to... to, to Perfect. Um, uh, so Alexander, that is an excellent question. Um, the key to happiness is relationships. Uh, research shows that over and over again. And when, when everyone got on social media and people were tweeting a photo of the hamburger they were eating, I thought, this is really stupid. But then I thought, oh, well, maybe it isn't. You know, maybe just like checking in with like 100 people every day and a little bit, that might be really good. Well, it turns out it wasn't. Um, in fact, um, I just published a paper with Jane Twenge that if you look at how 
uh, whether kids feel lonely in school. There's an international data set, uh, PISA, uh, I forget what it stands for, P-I-S-A, but it's the only global assessment of, of adolescents that we have uh, on education. But there's, some there's six questions on how you feel about school. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel you belong? And the ratings were stable from 2002 all the way to 2012. And then after 2012, by 2015 and 2018, they go way up in loneliness. And this was true in 35 out of 36 countries. So it's all over the world. All of a sudden, after 2012, kids are more lonely in school. And I believe it's because they're more connected. And what I mean by that is if you start spending three or four hours connecting through your device, that's going to push out other kinds of connection. Now, maybe connecting through a device is good for you, but it sure looks now like it's bad for you. And so the more connected you are through your device, the less connected you are in life, the lonelier you are, the more likely you are to be depressed. That, I believe, um, is what is going on. Now, it's complicated. The research is complicated. But I, I, but I would encourage you, Alexander, to look into that. Um, the degree to which people, uh, teenagers now, really have close friends or do they just have hundreds of contacts? Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. Um, I think uh, I wrote a recent article on, I work in technology and AI most of the time and people would currently, most of them come to me and ask me, what's the future of technology? What's the future of industry? What's the future job in this sector or that sector? And my answer to them was in my recent article, it's like, the future is about making people human again. It's about restoring humanity back, restoring that sense of of feeling and sense of analytical, critical thinking and sense of just being good, honest human and having an honest interaction with someone without being scared of uh, being um, stereotyped or being put into a specific box. But Hoda, yeah. that is wonderful. Can I just respond to you? Because I think that is key. Absolutely. So, so uh, the internet, social media, all of this was designed by engineers who know nothing about psychology yeah. No concern for psychology. Um, and um, and what it's created is things that are very efficient in certain ways, but they're often very inhumane. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, there's a wonderful organization, the Center for Humane Technology. Just Google it, Center for Humane Technology. Yeah. Tristan Harris, um, who was the center uh, of the, the Netflix uh, documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yeah. And I just want to put out there that the next big thing a lot of people are saying is the metaverse where now people can basically live online and they can you, you can buy an NFT clothing in, uh, in Fortnite and then you can wear that clothing on Twitter or whatever, I don't know. But yeah. the point is, what's coming is a gigantic virtual world that is incredibly inhumane. And yeah. what we have is so bad for, for teenagers already, it's going to get so much worse. And so yeah. if people are looking for a thing to do, study the metaverse, study online, what's happening to people yeah. online, and take psychology and bring psychology and sociology into yeah. the, the study of artificial intelligence and the metaverse. And, and literally, Jonathan, this is what we're trying to do in technology. We're trying to tell them it is interdisciplinary to call. We should not just build technology based on a, you know, a single perspective that's coming from a specific field. And this is the call that we put for the AR and VR Future Council on the World Economic Forum. And we say that you need to make a global movement of building purposeful technology. And this purpose is going to be centered around the human. And you need to have psychologists, social scientists as part 
of the technology development, primarily to avoid the bias and to avoid all of these aspects we're talking about. So Sandra Kai, Sandra Chai, I think, Sandra thinks that she is one, uh, she ticked so many boxes around your conversation saying that she had helicopter parents and she fall a victim for social media, um, you know, um, feelings all over the space. Social, she has been impacted by social media girls, um, even though she's never met them before. And now she thinks that she needs a bit of taxonomy of how to detox out of this, this kind of conditioning that we're subjected to. And she asked about your free play references in, in your slide. And would that be helpful in just, you know, going back to your inner child kind of concept? Well, so free play is essential before puberty. Um, all mammals play, uh, you know, puppies, kittens, humans, uh, they all play a lot, especially before puberty. Um, I don't know that free play is 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 what's going to really help you if you're already a, you know 18 or 20 or 22 years old, um, but you are still anti-fragile. Uh, the frontal cortex is the last part of the brain to to myelin to kind of lock down all the way up until about age 30. So uh, uh, so Sandra, if you're 35, it, it might be too late for you. But assuming you're still in your 20s, there is still a lot you can do. You should seek out a lot of experience, challenge, you know. Give yourself ever-increasing challenges up to what you think you can handle, and then maybe just a little bit beyond what you think you can handle. And you'll find you actually are stronger than you think. And, you and you'll learn to like, yeah, you're afraid. And yeah, I was very nervous, you know, asking this person this thing, but actually it worked out really well. Um, so give yourself a lot of experience. I would urge you to read Ancient Wisdom. Um, I, again, I suggest my book, The Happiness Hypothesis, to start because that gives you sort of an overview of the, of the relevant psychology. Uh, but then definitely read Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, the Buddha, um, and, and stop, um, stop being on social media. In particular, don't post. That's the most important thing. If you post things, you're basically saying to the world, you train me, you punish me and reward me. And I don't even know who you are, but I'm going to give over control of my brain to you. Don't do that. I'm not saying never check because realistically, you have, to, you have to see what's going on sometimes. But stop posting stuff. Don't let the world train you. Amazing. So don't be part of the data set. That's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, that's Amazing. right. That's how to put it. Yeah. So Andre Lopez, and he identified as he and him, he said NYU Abu Dhabi 2000. He's an NYU Abu Dhabi 2021 alum. And he definitely uh, thinks that NYU Abu Dhabi shows characteristics of safetyism. Um, and uh, Students entering defense mode. So how can you, this is an extension of what Sandra had, maybe on a larger scale. How can we, I think, preserve our explorative mode? Great question. Um, so I can yeah. tell you what happens at almost every institution that deals with kids, which is there's a one-way ratchet. That is, the administrators are, in, are responsible for your protection and at least in the United States, if anything goes wrong, somebody is going to sue them. They're going to take them to court, and it's a giant mess, and it's horrible. So administrators are always very, very defensive, and they always get more protective. They never get less protective. Um, and the only way to stop that process is if kids or young people or students push back, because the administrators are always going to increase protection, both to protect you and because they're afraid of consequences. The only way to stop it is for you, the students, to say, hey, look, you know, this is what's happening in other places and the results are terrible. You know what? We want to learn. Don't protect us from books and ideas. Don't protect us from each other. I mean, obviously, 
there is there are forms of sexual harassment there are forms of intimidation that should be punished but other than that if the students can work it out themselves it's so much better so to, so what tends to happen is if one person tweets something one student tweets something the administrators will panic and they will impose new rules but if uh, but the majority often doesn't want the extra protection but nobody knows that so students need to stand up um i you know give a give a copy of the coddling the american mind to the you know to the the dean or the or the uh, whoever's in charge at NYU abu dhabi you don't have to buy it just go to the coddling.com chapter one on anti-fragility is right there on the home page send a link to that chapter on anti-fragility get anti-fragility into the orientation materials and then at least there's a principled reason to push back Perfect, perfect. Uh, I think we have another question from a parent, Jacqueline Miziani, and she had two uh, remarks. First of all, she asked, why would you include uh, a Me Too movement within the CIFTism uh, aspects? And any advice for the parents with a very fragile Gen Z son in college? I think you have said it already about the three rules of not yeah. what yeah. not to adopt. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, the, the Me Too question is a great one because I'm not saying, hey, everything's okay. I'm not saying that at all. So first, Me Too was not a Gen Z movement. It was Gen X. Uh, it was older women in their in their 40s, especially, who'd been around, who'd seen this. This was a pattern of sexual harassment by a small number of men that did it over and over again and were not being punished. These men were committing crimes. Some, like Harvey Weinstein, was a criminal rapist, and he was getting away with it. This has nothing to do with safety. This is crimes. This is incredibly unethical behavior. This is abusive, exploitative behavior, and nobody was punishing it. So Me Too was great. Uh, now, you know, in some ways it went too far in that now any accusation can ruin a man's life. And, but, and now we're coming back, you know, so, but that had to happen. I think that had to happen, but then we have to come back and have due process. But no, Me Too was not safetyism. Me Too was addressing longstanding criminal behavior. Amazing. So uh, Turn Visual is saying, how would you advise to deal with those who grow up in a safe environment? He has a friend whose parents interfere whenever he had a question or disputes mm -hmm. in his life. Um, and then he is forced to use them as his campus in life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important. If you have overprotective parents, um, you're not going to learn very much while you're with them. Um, the, the way the attachment system works, we, we have a system that keeps us bound to our attachment figure when we're feeling threatened, but then when we feel safe, we go off and we have experiences and we play with our friends out of sight of the parents. That's very important. You have to be away from your attachment figure. That's where most of the learning happens. And then you go too far, something scary, you run back, you touch in with the home base, and then you go back out to play. That's the normal pattern for young puppies, kittens, and humans. Um, Overprotective parents stop that and they say, I will always be there with you, therefore you can't learn. Um, so it's crucial to get away from them. Um, try to arrange ways that you can travel, that you can have experiences um, traveling abroad. Of course, I presume the great majority of students at NYU Abu Dhabi are coming from another country. That's great. Um, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi is an amazing place to travel from. It's so easy to get to so much of the world from your airports there. Um, so do what you can to get away from your parents to have experiences, uh, and that's where you'll do most of your growing. So I think travel is the next advice you have for people who are 
not in touch with uh, reading, I think. Kate Chen, he, she said, beside reading all of the amazing reference that you have provided, what would be another meditative tool to steer away from all of this Gen Z uh, aspects? Um, and I think you said traveling. Yeah, travel. So I have another one for you, which is seek yeah. out viewpoint diversity. Um, so in fact, um, so I'll also send around a link. Uh, so you learn so um you learn the most by talking to people who really deeply believe something different from you and um uh and so go out and seek out those people so if you're on the political left and someone is going to come speak on your campus who's on the right even if that person is a jerk even if that person is trying to provoke reactions go see them challenge yourself and read uh about what they say the best assignment I ever created as a professor, when I taught a course on uh, the psychology of morality at the University of Virginia, the assignment was find a group on campus or in Charlottesville that has very different values from you. So often it was a very religious Christian church, or it was the College Republicans or the College Democrats. Find a group, spend time with them, listen to them, talk to them, try to explain the moral world as they see it. And students loved this assignment because they'd never done that. They'd never tried to put themselves in the head of someone very different. And of course, an international place like NYU Abu Dhabi is perfect for that. So seek out the very people that you disagree with. Seek out the very people you want to criticize. They're almost certainly human beings, and they almost certainly have reasons for what they believe, and they have different experiences that make their reasons sensible. Um, uh, so seek out viewpoint diversity. Uh, read John Stuart Mill on Liberty, Chapter 2, on viewpoint diversity. It's one of the greatest works ever written. And uh, I've made a version of it available, a, a compressed edited version available as a book called All Minus One. I'll send around a link to that as well. Yeah. We have a question in the chat for you. If you, if you don't mind to provide your reading lists, they captured whatever you have put in the slides, but it seems that you you have uh, an extensive list and they would love to find it. If it's in your website, they would check it. Um, some of them asked for your email and I think your email is enlisted on your personal website, I would say. Yeah, it is. But unfortunately, I get, I'm now, I, I get a thousand emails a day. I can't even answer it. I feel that. It's so, okay. I'm in the same shoes. So I understand that. So Mary. Yeah. Great. I'll make some works. I'll make some works available. I don't. I should have a ready reading list. Uh, there's a lot of suggestions in the back of the Coddling of the American Mind, and on the website, go to thecoddling.com. Uh, there's a lot of suggestions there. Um, uh, and yeah, so I would say I'd say start start with the Coddling and with the Happiness Hypothesis, and each of those books reviews a lot of other books, so you get a little summary of a lot of other books, and you can go read those books. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot help but notice that what you're calling for is something that might be uh, the opposite of the current educational system we have. We are an education system that kind of segregates us into special, specializations and venues. And you're calling for us to go back to the previous scholarly uh, you know, acts uh, where we have that kind of power of implementing an extensive process of critical thinking and debating and trying to understand the 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 uh the strange factor or the person who is um different than us uh, more than just you know settling into a specific comfort zone and i would have to uh, hope to say to see 
more of that kind of um, level of education being provided uh, outside of the current, um, you know, educational systems that we see around. Um, so we have a question from Mary, and I think Mary, she wanted to ask you two major questions. First, she wanted to know oh, what is the claim that groups that have experienced more privilege, for example, uh, young to midlife adults or higher SES uh, Euro uh, or Europeans or men, etc., in the West versus those in which have experienced less are categorized as bad versus good. What are we basing this on? So and she's also... I don't, understand. No, wait, I don't understand the question. Can you repeat that? She's, she's saying that normally in certain research, certain groups of people are being categorized as either good or bad. So she's saying the clusters of category could be, uh, they could be experienced and more privileged in this sector, like young to midlife adults. She's between parentheses, she's going, uh, giving an example. Young to midlife uh, adults, higher SES, European, men, etc. and the West. Why are they categorized as either more privileged or less privileged or good or bad? Um, like I think, why are they stereotyped most of the time in this category? And this is, I think, beyond so the category. There's two ways that she might mean that. One is she might be saying, why are like you know white men seen as good and non-white women seen as bad? But that I, I mean that m might have been true 50 years ago, but I, I have not seen that in. I mean, universities we tend to tend to do the opposite. Yeah. Or she might be asking, why is it that that white men and Europeans are are seen as bad. And I thought, I, and I explained that as because in the power structure, they're the ones with power and that makes them bad. So I'm not, I think I must've missed the point of the question though. I think what she meant is we need to push against these narratives because we think we are stereotyping them as good as bad based on the oh, historical records of research or yeah. why we are doing this. Yeah. Well, that's right. And that, that's, that's the problem with, you know, a lot of the, what, what it, it, people who follow Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo is you know whiteness is the, is this evil force and white kid you know I mean what's so white kids are being told you're the bad ones you're the you know so um, yeah we're basically stereotyping now of course there are you know I mean I mean social class is the one that actually really matters in life um, but we are stereotyping and treating whole you know large diverse groups of people as though they have one trait or one quality it's 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 destructive it's illiberal I would say. And we're creating a generational trauma, like we're creating something now that we are opposing to. What we're living today is the generational trauma of what existed, you know, 100 years back. And we, if we're doing this, if we keep on segregating these people into whiteism or whatever it is, it will transcend down to the next generations and we'll have another movement to create equality on that base. Okay, so Mary is asking you again, do you observe any effect of the pandemic on your research? Does it make Generation Z happier or less happier, steering away from social media or closer to social media? Yeah, I think we don't know yet. Um, the, so the trends were terrible all the way up to, uh, to um, uh, COVID, and then things vary. Typically during wartime or during crisis, uh, depression and suicide go down. Uh, if it's a common challenge, people come together, uh, and in some places in the world, they did come together. Um, uh, so uh, those, those are the immediate effects. In the long run, 
COVID will be good for some people because it will be a challenge that helped them grow, but it's going to be terrible for many others. Uh, and here it depends a lot on social class. So, you know, I live in New York City. As soon as COVID hit, so much, so many people on the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, wealthy people all went to their houses in the Hamptons. Their kids had a great time playing with each other on the beach during COVID. Um, whereas in the Bronx and in, in Brooklyn and Queens, you know, f- extended families had to now come together in a two-bedroom apartment. So uh, in some ways that could be good for some kids, but there was a lot more child abuse, domestic violence. Uh, so I, I, we, I, we don't know yet. We need to see national data broken down by social class, race. We just don't know. It's going to have a lot of effects. One that I'm afraid of is already Gen Z came to see everything as dangerous and threatening. And now Gen Z, who is at the least risk, Gen Z is very unlikely to die from COVID, but they're the ones who most want to wear masks all the time. They're the most afraid of COVID. Old people who are at risk are the least afraid of COVID. So Gen Z, I think now is told everyone's dangerous. Don't touch anyone. Germs are everywhere. So I think it's going to overall, I think COVID is going to hurt Gen Z the most by making them even more afraid of other people. But I think the results are going to be very mixed. and I don't know what they are yet. I think we're very, I think it also depends on the geographical or the cultural narrative, because in UAE here, I could see that the older generation is the one that's attached to the mask more than the younger generation. So I think it depends definitely on on that. Uh, Yash Gudiwala, she's asking, how would you know? She had three questions and primarily they're focused on, how would you know that you're conditioned towards a specific ideology on social media and how can you make really a reality check on what is your genuine desire genuine likes genuine dislikes before being conditioned how to de-bias yourself if you're biased how to realize that you are subjected to other people's opinions and how can you de-bias yourself yeah well the first thing um is that when kids hit puberty, their world really changes and they're all looking to each other about what's cool, what's good, what should I want, how should I wear, how should I talk? This has always been the case. Suddenly, 11-year-olds are on Instagram. Now, Mark Zuckerberg says they're not on it because you have to be 13, but he's lying. I, I asked him about this. I said, Mark, why do you allow 11-year-olds on, on Instagram? He said, we don't. Um, uh, we have 11, 12-year-olds who are just beginning to figure out what, how, you know, how should I be, and that they hook themselves up to social media. Now they're going to be conditioned by what lots of strangers say. Um, so it's really important that we protect kids, I think, at least until 16. They should not be on any site that allows them to post content that's rated by strangers. Um, Snapchat may be okay, but posting on Instagram and TikTok should be delayed till they're 16, at least, in my opinion. Um, uh, as for if you're older than 16, I think, again, it's extremely important to pull yourself back, recognize that social media, especially when you're rated by strangers, is the most powerful uh, uh, opinion-shaping machinery ever built. Stay away from it. Um, expose yourself to a range of people and try to, try to reconnect to previous generations and centuries. This is one of the worst things about our modern time is that Gen Z has wisdom deprivation disorder. There has never been a generation so entirely cut off from everything that happened 10 years before they were born. I mean, Gen Z tends to know almost nothing about the 20th century, um, to say nothing of earlier times. 
uh, a lot of literature is now off limits to them because it says things that are not politically acceptable. So they will never read the classics. Uh, and this is, uh, so it's a generation adrift. So you have to take control, link yourself widely to different people and link yourself to previous uh, centuries and generations. Amazing, amazing. So I'll take one last question, I think, before we can wrap up. So uh, so how, how do you, David uh, Markham is asking, how does the trend of humanity departments in the United States stressing, stressing justice for victimized group inter, uh, intersects with the vulnerability of Gen Z, for example, um, be identified? Um, and do you think that this attitude uh, would encourage Generation Z to identify as, to identify as victims um, for safety reasons. So the humanities are very varied, and you know departments of philosophy are very different from departments of comparative literature or women's studies. Um, some departments are focused on scholarship, on 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 research. Some departments are focused on activism. Um, I personally think that activism should not be in any departments. I think academic departments should focus on finding truth and then the students can take what they learn and use that in their activism. Unfortunately, um, there are many sub-communities at a university where if you question, you will be destroyed. And so in these activist departments, students can't learn the truth because something is asserted, no one can challenge it. Um, so I think activism that is not based on a commitment to truth is usually misguided. Um, you know, if you're going to be shooting a cannon, well, you should shoot it in a, in a wise direction, not just shoot it randomly. So I do think that, you know, look, the humanities are essential for developing a broad thinking. You know, we talk about humane technology, humane living. Uh, when the humanities were about what it is to be human, I think they served a very important function, and many still do. But a lot of the humanities now are about activism and uh, of course, justice is important, but if, you, if, you, if you're in a community that can't find the truth because you shoot dissenters, then you should not be trying to change systems that you don't understand. So I think that a lot of the academic departments now are harming the students who enter them. Um, I, I found some data that shows they have higher rates of depression and anxiety. Um, and I think they're also harming society because they're turning out students who are 100% certain that they're right and largely wrong in their diagnosis of how systems work. Right. Great insights. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, unfortunately, one hour and a half is never enough for this conversation because it's it's beyond the well-being of now. It's for the well-being of the future generation. And uh, we are taking away your advice of connecting with the other, connecting with the different and our community and our society, not only for the dimension of today, but also what happened in the past and read the classicals and enjoy and travel uh, through time and through experiences in order to reflect on how to build a resilient, anti-fragile mind and uh, a stronger, hopefully, and happier generation. Thank you so much for being with us. Do you want to address the audience with any last thoughts before we wrap uh, up the conversation? Yeah, what you just said was beautiful. And I would just say, when you are reaching out or approaching others, if you do it with love in your heart, you'll be in approach mode and you will learn from it. And if you do it with fear or suspicion in your heart, then you will be in avoid mode and you won't learn from it. So everything you just said was beautiful. Just open your mind and heart before you do it. And then you will create this virtuous triangle at NYU Abu Dhabi. You will, the university will prosper and thrive. 
the UAE will thrive. Uh, so yes, let us close on that note of love and openness. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And with much love and openness, uh, thank you for everybody who's connected on this platform. And thank you for NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for hosting us. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.